Section 21 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire. The Rearguard of European Civilization. By Edward Ford. Section 21. The Angeli, the traitor's stroke. Isaac Angelos was a sovereign of a type which hitherto we have hardly met in East Roman history. He was a mere spectacular figure, handsome, a fine courtier, but without capacity for government. His elevation was a disaster. The times were such that a vigorous ruler was urgently needed. Vile as he was, Andronicus might have saved the empire, had he survived for ten years. Under the Angeli, hope was soon lost. At first, Isaac II showed some vigor. We should perhaps rather say that the measures initiated by Andronicus were carried out without interference by the new emperor, the Sicilian army was advancing on the capital from Thessalonica. A Sicilian fleet was in the Propontis. An army under Alexius Branas covered Constantinople. Isaac propitiated it by prompt payment of arrears and a handsome donation. The total cost was 4,000 pounds of gold, about 190,000 pounds a fact which shows how wealthy, even in its decline, the empire was, as compared with the barbarian West, where half this sum would have been thought enormous. The army was still efficient when well-led. Branas defeated the Sicilians before Mosinopolis, and following them up, caught and again routed them at Amphiopolis, they retreated in headlong flight to Durazzo, and forthwith evacuated the empire, the fleet withdrawing at the same time. A Seleuc raid was bought off, and Isaac might hope for quiet. But in 1186, Bulgaria rose in a revolt under three brothers, Peter, John, and Asan. The cause was undoubtedly fiscal oppression. The first effort was defeated, but in the same year an expedition to Cyprus, where Isaac Komnenos had now established himself, was repulsed. In 1187 Isaac's uncle, John, defeated the rebels, but they gained in their turn a success over John Cantacuzinos and crossed Hymus into Thrace. Isaac now, much against his inclination, placed Alexius Branas in command. Branas defeated the Bulgarians and cleared Thrace, but then proclaimed himself emperor and marched on the capital. Isaac only saved himself by enlisting in his behalf Conrad, Marquis of Montferrat, afterwards famous in the Third Crusade, who was then in Constantinople. The troops of Branas arrived outside the gates and attacked, but were repulsed.
Then Montferrat sallied out and defeated them, killing Branas. His death was another misfortune for the empire. He was a good general and might have made a good emperor. He could not have been worse than Isaac. In the confusion of the civil war, the Bulgarians steadily made headway, and in 1190 the great western emperor, Friedrich Barbarossa, reached the east on his way to the crusade, and there was fresh trouble. Isaac had no love for crusaders. There was peace between him and the famous Salah ed-Din Yusuf, now supreme in Egypt and Syria. The ill will of east towards west had been becoming steadily more pronounced since 1144. Barbarossa had to fight his way through Thrace, but his great personality cowed Isaac. Peace was made, and Friedrich crossed to Asia. In 1190 he fought his way through Asia Minor, and had almost reached Syria, when he was drowned in the Calicadnos. The name which he left in Germany is well known. In 1191, Cyprus was finally lost, owing to Komnenos' quarrel with Richard I of England. In 1192, Isaac at last took the field against the Bulgarians. He was defeated, and Varna, Nish, and Sardica, which had hitherto held out, fell one after another. Yet next year Isaac defeated the Servians, who had now joined in the revolt, and reduced them to submission. Clearly the situation was still far from desperate. In 1194 the Bulgarians made their way through Hemus into Thrace. They failed to take Adrianople, but pushed forward to Arcadiopolis, and defeated an imperial force under its walls. The way was now clear for an advance on the capital, but they probably felt no confidence in their power to capture the great city and retired northwards. Isaac had done nothing, employing his time in gorgeous festivities in the palace. The court expenditure rose to the enormous sum of 4,000 pounds of silver a day, though every department of the administration was starved for want of money. To raise funds, all the experience of bankruptcy were called into play. Offices were bought and sold as formerly, and new ones recklessly created and put up for sale. No pay was attached to any posts, either of old or new creation. The officials, as Nikitas bitterly says, were sent forth without purse or scrip to recoup themselves by oppressing the provincials. The empire had all but lost the last semblance of a constitutionally governed state. Its condition would have appeared evil past description to anyone who had known the well-being of the Macedonian times. Even to those who could only remember the decadent days of the Kamneni, it was evident that matters could not well be worse. Misgovernment had the usual results. Brigandage began everywhere to raise its head. 
as men fled from the intolerable oppression of those worse brigands who called themselves imperial officials. The rule of the law everywhere relaxed. Anarchy grew apace. In 1195, the weak monarch felt himself forced to take energetic measures. Great preparations were made for a renewal of the war, but before Isaac could take the field, he was dethroned and blinded by a coup d'etat, effected by his brother Alexius, with whom he had never been on good terms. He had reigned about nine and a half years. He was not a positively bad man, merely weak and pleasure-loving, not actively cruel or malignant, but as a ruler he deserved little but contempt. Alexius III was not long in showing that he was yet more worthless than his brother. Isaac had once or twice roused himself to display of energy, but Alexius was absolutely inert. He was ruled in all things by his wife, Euphrosyne, a specimen of the bad type of society woman, clever, shameless, dissolute, and what was of the worst import for the bleeding empire, a reckless spendthrift. Alexius made an ostentatious declaration at his accession of his intention of instituting reforms. As a matter of fact, nothing was done. The disposition of patronage was managed by Euphrosyne, and a ring of courtiers who made their market out of it, while the disorder of the administration was at its height. The army, mutinous and unpaid, melted away to a shadow, and the navy was literally non-existent, hardly a ship being fit for sea, while the ministers of marine sold the stores and equipment almost without concealment. The people, though growing steadily more and more exasperated at the increase of taxation, had no means, except revolt, of expressing their sentiments. They were hardly aware of what was going on. A sale of naval stores, for example, which left the arsenal half empty, could be easily advertised as a disposal of useless superfluities. For the present, there was little trouble in Asia. The Seleuc Sultanate was torn by civil war. In Europe, Hassan, the Bulgarian leader, was assassinated by a noble named Ivan, who took service with the empire and, until 1200, faithfully guarded the passes of Hemus against Calo-John, or Dionysius, Hassan's successor. In 1197, Henry VI, the great emperor of the West, threatened the empire, and Alexius ground his subjects yet more for money to buy him off. In 1198, there was a revolt in Macedonia under Croesus of Stromitia, which was put down in the following year, but in 1200, Ivan the Bulgarian broke out in rebellion. He was betrayed and put to death, and then, for once in his life, Alexius, or his ministers, 
made a great effort. Peace was made with the new Vlaco-Bulgarian kingdom, and exertions were made to restore order in the European provinces. For the moment, a return of tranquillity seemed at hand, but peace was of little avail without reform, and though there was no longer a war on the borders, anarchy continued to increase. At Constantinople, the Empress's conduct was the chief subject of gossip during these years. She eventually went a little too far, even for her invertebrate husband. By indulging openly in a criminal intrigue with a Ducas Vatasis, the brilliant imperial prostitute was exiled and even imprisoned for several months, but Alexius found himself lost without her unscrupulous cleverness, and Euphrosine was forgiven, released, and was soon flaunting herself before the loungers of Constantinople more gaily than before. Alexius could take his ease once more. His instincts were those of mere self-gratification. He was in this respect more contemptible than his brother, who had some artistic tastes. In a fool's paradise of gorgeous pageants and banquets, the infatuated monarch dreamed away the years, while without the palace walls confusion ever became worse confounded, when suddenly, without warning, the blow fell. In 1203 he heard that a Venetian fleet and a western army, accompanied by his nephew Alexius, son of Isaac the Second, who had succeeded in escaping from Constantinople, were on their way to dethrone him. The Western army consisted of French, Flemings, and Italians, under Baldwin of Flanders and Bonifacio of Montferrat. It had gathered at Venice for a fourth crusade against Egypt and Syria, now under the vigorous rule of El Adil Saif ed Din Mohammed, brother of Salah ed Din Yusuf. El Adil was a pronounced westernizer. He had contracted a chivalrous acquaintance with Richard Coeur de Lyon during the Third Crusade and was alive to the importance of the trade with the Italian cities. He had granted trading privileges to the Venetians who were by no means disposed to enter upon hostilities which would rob them of them. They kept the crusaders loitering near Venice until their scanty funds were expended, and then, under the guidance of the famous doge Enrico Dandolo, suggested that they should pay for their passage by mercenary service. To this Baldwin of Flanders agreed, Montferrat was already deep in Dandolo's schemes, and the crusading host proceeded by sea to Zara, which in weakening of the empire in the Adriatic had become independent and stormed it for Venice. The plunder, however, under the careful manipulation of the Venetians, did not yield enough to pay the passage of the army to the east. Dandolo then proposed 
that the expedition should be diverted to Constantinople. Young Alexius Angelos appeared in the camp soon after the fall of Zara and added his entreaties. He was lavish in his promises of assistance of every kind, if they would restore his father, and the prospect of pocketing Byzantine gold began to seduce the greedy western barons. Still, all was not over. The great pope, Innocent III, the promoter of the crusade, was already angry at the expedition against Zara. Baldwin of Flanders had scruples, as well he might have, as to the morality of the proceeding. But he was persuaded by Dandolo and Montferrat not to abandon his comrades. The Pope, who would probably have excommunicated the army and Venice alike, had he got wind of the nefarious design, was kept in complete ignorance. The agreement finally made was that Venetians and Crusaders should re-enthrone Isaac II and receive 200,000 marks of silver and a reinforcement of 10,000 troops for service in Syria. To propitiate the Pope, a clause was inserted to the effect that the Eastern Church was to acknowledge the supremacy of Rome. There can be little doubt that Dandolo saw from the first that the conditions were not likely to be fulfilled without friction, and that then Venice would be able to use the barbarian host to destroy her commercial rival. The Venetians were the moving spirit in the great act of international piracy, and upon them in general, on Dandolo in particular, the guilt must mainly rest. In July, the whole force of Venice and the Crusade reached the Bosphorus. The Westerners were apparently 30,000 to 40,000 strong. As to the Venetian numbers, we know nothing. No effective resistance could be made. The only reliable troops in the capital were the Varangian Guard, half-mutinous for want of pay. The navy was almost non-existent. Only twenty ill-equipped vessels could be put in commission. The Venetians probably had five times that number of galleys. The army was put on shore some distance from the capital, and the tumultuary force which attempted to oppose its march was dispersed without difficulty. The crusaders' attack on a section of the land wall was repulsed by the Varangian guard, but the Venetian fleet forced the boom at the harbor's mouth and carried twenty-five of the bastions of the low sea-walls by throwing light boarding bridges on them from scaffolds raised on their galleys. Once inside, they set fire to the harbor quarters, and a terrible conflagration resulted, which destroyed great part of the northern and northeastern side of the city. The wretched Alexius III then fled into the open country, and the deserted officers released and re-enthroned the blind Isaac II. They informed Prince Alexius, and hostilities ceased, to the disgust of Venetians, who had made the beginning of destroying Constantinople, and longed to complete the work. Much to the disappointment of the brutal barons and soldiery, 
who were thirsting for rapine. For the next five months they lay round the city, endeavouring to wring, by any and every means, money out of the emperors. Isaac the Second seems to have become half imbecile during his long confinement, and the presence and threats of the rude westerners completed the overthrow of his intellect while his son was treated with contempt by the barons and detested by the constantinopolitans as the one who had sold them and their church to the pope the ever-increasing demands of the filibusters of course prompted by dandolo with the object of forcing on a quarrel at last induced Alexius to begin plundering the churches, January 1204. At once the revolt broke out, the gates were closed, and every Latin who could be caught was murdered. Isaac II died of terror. Alexius IV hid himself in the palace, and turned for help in quelling the tumult, to the protovestiarios Alexius Ducas, nicknamed Murzuflus, on account of his bushy beetling eyebrows. Ducas seized and strangled him, was acknowledged emperor by the army and people, and prepared to fight for his crown. Money was hardly to be had, but the new emperor seized all the available property of the Angelon courtiers and ministers, and was able partly to pay the arrears due the few regular corps within the city. He endeavored to strengthen his hopelessly inadequate force by arming the citizens. This attempt was practically a failure. The Constantinopolitans were unwarlike. They responded to the emperor's appeals by complaining that they paid taxes for their defense. The regular regiments were made untrustworthy by being diluted with recruits. The militia corps from the first were nearly useless. At sea, Alexius could do nothing. The Venetian fleet lay securely in the harbor. All that could be done was to strengthen the sea wall. The emperor was frequently in the field. He had all the instincts of the fighting Byzantine nobility. He straightened the besieging horde for provisions, kept the city fairly supplied, and gained some small successes. But in a single action of any magnitude, his raw troops were beaten. On April 9, the Venetians and Westerners assaulted the city on its northwestern side. The Venetians attacked the sea wall on a front of two miles. The land army threatened the gate of Blackerne. The attack was repelled with considerable loss, and the defeat caused dissensions among the Allies. Baldwin and the moderate or scrupulous party, regarding it as the vengeance of heaven, but they could do nothing without the Venetians, and Dandolo insisted on a renewal of the assault. On April 12th, a second attempt was made, and this time the sea wall was penetrated. The garrison defended the wall of Blackerne until taken in the rear, and then fell back into the streets. 
the Westerners occupied the northwestern quarters of the city, and, as before, set fire to the houses. Under cover of night, the Emperor endeavored to rally his troops, hoping yet to repel the invaders in a street fight. The men, however, were demoralized. They threw down their arms and deserted in numbers. The Varangian guard mutinied outright and refused to fight unless they were paid. Alexius, beside himself with rage and despair, went to the palace of Bucoleon, and thence, seeing no hope of defending the city, fled by the Golden Gate into Thrace. Many officers and nobles at once followed his example. In haste, often in disguise, with such of their money and goods as they could carry, men, women, and children fled to escape from the brutal horde, which was already spreading ruin through the splendid city. General Theodore Lascaris, son-in-law of Alexius III, remained until day, striving to gather troops for a final effort, but he could do nothing. The army had melted away, and at last he too withdrew to Asia. At dawn the victors found that all resistance had ceased. Without cause, without a shadow of excuse, they proceeded with care and deliberation to sack the city. What a lovely place to plunder! was all the fierce and uncouth old Prussian Blücher could say when he saw London. And if a civilized, save the mark, soldier could speak thus in 1814, we can imagine the feelings of the brutal, vicious nobles of medieval France and Burgundy when they found themselves among the wealth for which they had thirsted so long. The Italians were almost as bad. The Venetians behaved worst of all, for they shed more blood than their allies. No circumstance of horror was spared the unhappy city. Thousands of citizens were murdered in the streets and houses. Dwellings were sacked. Their female inmates outraged in hideous fashion and frequently murdered. Buildings were destroyed right and left. Sacred edifices fared worse even than private houses. Priests were slain. Nuns violated. The clergy with the Westerners disgraced themselves and their church for all time. They took an active part in the pillage and lifted not a hand to stay the horrors that were going on. The loss to art was beyond calculation. The havoc done to the cause of civilization by the wanton destruction of priceless books will not bear contemplation. The soldiery burned libraries in their campfires, and though nominal Christians, they held ribald orgies in Hagia Sophia, while prostitutes performed filthy actions and dances on the very altar. After three days of pillage, outrage, and murder, the leaders made a public distribution of such valuables as remained unplundered, and then collected all the bronze works of art and melted them down for the mint. 
it is difficult to write of such deeds without indignation. Italians and French alike showed that in 1204 they were barbarians, and barbarians of a very low type. The Turks in 1453 had the excuse that they were fighting hard up to the very moment of their entry into the city, but in 1204 all resistance had ceased long before the sack. The extreme depths of cowardice, greed, lasciviousness, and senseless stupidity were reached on this occasion. The Westerners may fairly claim to have outdone the Turks. When Pope Innocent heard so much of the truth as filtered through to him, he declared in righteous wrath that no good could ever come of the conquest. Two-thirds of the splendid city of Constantine were heaps of ashes. All that remained was ruined, stripped bare of everything, naked and desolate. Three-fourths of the people had fled or had perished. None but the poorest remained. Baldwin of Flanders was elected emperor and received the wrecked capital. Thrace and the Asiatic provinces Boniface was at first granted Lydia and Caria, but held out for Macedonia and Thessaly. He had married the widow of Isaac II. The Venetians claimed a quarter and half a quarter of the empire, which they interpreted as every isle and port that they could seize upon. In their utter ignorance, the leaders drew lots for the Seleuc Sultanate and for Persia and Assyria. In actual fact, everything had to be conquered. The victors held only Constantinople and its district. Kalojan of Bulgaria was on his way to make his profit out of the dismembered empire. Alexius III was still at large in Thrace. Alexius V was indeed captured near the capital, brought back and flung from the top of the column of Arcadius, because he murdered his predecessors. Certainly the filibustering ringleaders had little sense of shame, nor had they even the honor which is supposed to exist among thieves. Seven thousand of the barons and followers went home after the sack, they had gained wealth enough to last them all their life, and saw no reason for undergoing further hardship. In Asia, Theodore Lascaris was in Nicaea, and several other nobles were at the head of local risings. Alexius Komnenos, who had already made himself practically independent in Trebizond with the help of Tamar, the famous queen of Georgia, proclaimed himself emperor of the faithful Romans. His brother David was active in Bithynia. Wherever a leader arose, the Greek population gathered about him and prepared to fight the destroyers of the city queen. Even at this early date, it was becoming evident that the Latin Empire of Romania was to be only a simulacrum and a sham. The leaders of the shameful pirate raid 
were soon to know disaster and to pay for their deeds with death and captivity. One of them was past human judgment. Dandolo died soon after the sack. One hopes devoutly that, if there be hell, torments of special terror were reserved for him. He may fairly claim to have done more to ruin southeastern Europe and Asia Minor, to deliver them over to the Turks, to destroy Christianity in them, and to retard the general progress of civilization than anyone. Venice, for whom he did such deeds as, if private individuals only were concerned, would debar him from the company of honest men, may honor him. From the rest of the world he deserved nothing but execration. End of section 21 Recording by Mike Botez.